You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. Thanksgiving has been a federal holiday since Abraham Lincoln made it such in 1863. And if you're familiar with Civil War history, you know that that is right smack, dibble, right smack dab in the middle of the Civil War. In fact, it was actually right after the Battle of Gettysburg, that bloody, gruesome battle, and the Union had won at a great cost, that Lincoln proclaimed that it should be a federal holiday that the people give thanks together. Thanksgiving had been celebrated before that. However, it had always been kind of a yearly proclamation, starting with George Washington. Lincoln said in the middle of that horrendous chapter in our nation's history, he said we should stop and give the Lord thanks. And it's been a standing federal holiday ever since. And that struck me this week as I was studying John 19. Because in John 19, what we have is we have the Roman government who is incredibly powerful politically, incredibly mighty militarily. They are central in this death of Jesus. The Romans haven't showed up a whole lot in John's gospel up to this point, but throughout the rest of it, they're going to play a very central role. Because the priests have brought Jesus to the Romans to have him executed. And the Romans are this incredibly powerful, mighty empire, but it's come at a cost. And when America paused to give the Lord thanks in 1863, we were a blessed nation, but it had come at quite a cost. A lot of blood had been spilt to birth this nation, and a lot of blood was being spilt to preserve this nation. When the Romans have this power over the Jews, they're the occupying force in Israel. They were incredibly powerful, but that power and the expanse of their empire had come at a great cost. Many Roman soldiers had died. And many people had been killed to conquer the nations as the Romans made their advance. But when they conquered a nation, they then had to work to preserving it as a part of the empire. And so they would establish governors over these provinces and countries to keep the peace and keep the people subjugated to the Romans. As the Romans made their advance, as they crushed opponents as they tried to keep the peace and keep the people in subjection to them there became an instrument that they used again and again to show just how handily just how powerfully they had conquered their enemies to show just how mighty they were against anyone who would try to rebel against them they had to kill a lot of people to demonstrate this And as they killed all of these people, as they made their advance, they came up with an instrument of torturous death that was scalable, that they could build anywhere where there were trees because it only required two pieces of lumber and three nails. It was the cross. 
And the cross was not only scalable and they could easily build it in whatever country they were in, it had the stage effect of a hanging. It was an incredibly public display because the person dying on the cross would be lifted up above everyone's heads where they could see it. And the Romans would offer, often put crosses along the main highways and main entryways into cities and into villages so that everyone who came and went to do business would see that the Romans have killed these people because they dared speak against them. Not only did it have the stage presence of a hanging, it lasted for hours. And oftentimes people would be nailed to the cross and left to die crying out in agony for hours. This instrument of torture and execution was so painful that the verb tense of it, crucifixion, is where we get our term excruciating. And if you've ever used the term, I'm in excruciating pain, you're harkening back to that Roman Greek term that was used for the cross. Through these years of keeping people in subjection, through these years of executing their enemies, through these years of conquering nations, the Romans became incredibly numb to violence and blood. When we look back on the Roman Empire, we often have kind of a romanticized view of the Roman people because we view them as these people who they developed and they expanded culture and they built these incredible buildings, these beautiful artifacts of architecture. But one of their most popular artifacts of architecture being the Colosseum was built for the gathering of people to watch gladiators duel to the death. It's a place where many people would gather to watch Christians be thrown literally to the wolves or to lions or to be burned or to die at the hands of warriors for spectacle. And you and I, we have the opportunity to watch these types of images on our television sets and we know that the people aren't really harmed or hurt. They didn't have the special effects, so they literally killed people. And through these years of being the powerful ones in charge and having to subjugate their enemies, they became incredibly numb to the blood sport. And so when Jesus comes, he's presented by the priest to be killed. To have someone crucified on a cross is not that extraordinary of a thing. In fact, it was so common that when Jesus says, if the Son of Man is lifted up, he uses a common term that people know that he's referring to the cross. It was a part of life in the Roman Empire. But even though the Romans had become used to this type of spectacle, and even though Pilate's main job was to keep the Jews subjugated, to keep them subject to the Romans, when it comes time for Pilate to sentence Jesus to death, he struggles to bring himself to do it. And so if you got your Bible open to John 19, look at verse 6. Because in verse 6, when the chief priest, therefore, officers saw him. And the reason that John is pointing this out is that Pilate has brought Jesus up after he has been scourged. And a scourging is when they would whip him with a cat of nine tails 39 times. He had been beaten and they had taken a, a vine of thorns. And when you and I think of thorns, we think of a rose bush that might be in our garden and the thorn might prick your finger. But the thorns that they would have had would have been incredibly long. 
And they fashioned this crown of thorns and they placed it on his head. They've taken some purple garment and laid it across his back and they've mocked him as a king. They've struck him on the head with a rod or reed, driving that crown of thorns into his brow. He's been whipped after he had his back stretched out by having his arms shackled low so that his skin was taut and the whip could rip and tear the skin to shreds. Roman soldiers would brag about their skill with the cat of nine tails, that whip. They would brag about the fact that they could pull out an organ of someone's stomach because they would throw the whip across their back. It would wrap across their body, grab a hold of the skin in their stomach, and then they would pull it back. Jesus has already experienced this when the priests see him. And Pilate is hopeful that this gory sight of Jesus bleeding to death, beaten so badly he could hardly be recognized as a man, Pilate is hoping that that will satisfy the priests. But verse 6 says, when they see him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him, put him on the cross. Pilate says to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. We began to saw last week, began to see last week in 18, that Pilate could sense that this is real and that Jesus is powerful and he wants nothing to do with this. But if Pilate doesn't send Jesus to his death, the people will revolt. Pilate has had Jesus scourged or beaten in an attempt to get Jesus off of this charge. But when the people respond to the sight of Jesus' beaten and whipped body with more cries for crucifixion, Pilate says, you're going to have to do it because I find no fault in him. But I want you to pay special attention to verses 7 and 8. Because the response of the priests give to Pilate in that moment Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law and by our law he ought to die. Pilate, it's fine that you don't find any fault in him, but according to our law he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. So in Pilate, he's got to die because he's he's committed blasphemy. He's said that he is God. And I want you to see Pilate's reaction to that statement. Verse 8, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was more afraid. Pilate was already worried. He could sense that something wasn't right about this, that the priests were trying to put an innocent man to death. He could sense that there was something different about Jesus. He had received a message from his wife saying, have nothing to do with Jesus. I've suffered many things in a dream about him. And when they say, listen, he said that he's son of God, Pilate can sense this guy has some divine essence, some deity to him. And so his immediate reaction is that he goes back to Jesus and asks him, where did you come from? And Jesus doesn't answer. Pilate is frustrated. He says, don't you know that I have the authority to put you to death? Pilate is trying to find some way out of this because he can sense this is something real. He doesn't understand it all. But he's stuck. When Thomas Jefferson became president, he chose not to observe the holiday of Thanksgiving. Before him, 
President George Washington, President John Adams, they had made the annual proclamation of a day of thanksgiving. But when Jefferson became president, he stopped making those proclamations. Because it wasn't yet a federal holiday, those years went by without there being a thanksgiving. Thomas Jefferson's political opponents accused him of being an atheist. And they said that the reason he wasn't celebrating thanksgiving is because he didn't believe in God. There were a group of pastors that wrote a letter to Jefferson uh, about some religious liberty issues. And in a first draft of his response to the Danbury Baptist Association of Connecticut, Jefferson explained that the reason that he didn't proclaim Thanksgiving a holiday was the same reason that he didn't proclaim national times of prayer and fasting, because he saw it as state-sponsored religion. You see, in Jefferson's mind, he didn't see how a holiday like Thanksgiving could be anything other than religious. Jefferson couldn't imagine the way that we celebrate Thanksgiving today. That it's all about food and football. Jefferson couldn't imagine that people would gather and gorge on a feast of food without even stopping to say grace or give God thanks. He couldn't imagine that a day of thanksgiving could happen without people gathering together with believers to thank the God that they were thanking. So to him, it seemed like a violation. It seemed like state-sponsored religion. Jefferson would be surprised to see the way that we celebrate Thanksgiving today. I'll be honest, it just kind of bums me out the way that we celebrate Thanksgiving today. I hope that you watch football and eat a lot of food. I'm going to do that. But that's not what the day is about. It's not feast giving. It's Thanksgiving. So in Jefferson's mind, Thanksgiving is a religious holiday. He didn't feel like he could proclaim it. Lincoln would later come along. He didn't feel like that was an issue, and so he would make it a federal holiday. Jefferson put that in the first draft of his letter, but his advisors edited the letter, and they took it out. They were afraid that if Jefferson made those claims, it would feed the fire of the Danbury Baptist Association, those people that were fighting for religious liberties. And so they kind of took the the teeth out of the letter that he was writing. What happens a lot of times to our political officers is even when they want to take a stand, the people that are around them don't allow them to take the stand that they want to because it's not politically expedient. What Pilate is experiencing here is that exact same thing. Pilate can feel in his conscience, he can feel in his soul that there's something different about Jesus and he doesn't want to sentence him to die. But he's stuck. Pilate tries one more step and it tells us that Pilate then brings Jesus to a place called the pavement in verse 13 or in the Hebrew it's called Gabbatha. He's hoping that there'll be more people present there other than just these priests and he presents, here is Jesus, your king and The priests yell out again, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate feels that he has no option. Verse 15, but they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto him, shall I crucify your king? And the priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And and to you, that might not seem like a big deal, but these are the religious 
people. They're to be committed to the nation of Israel. They're to be committed to God's people, to God's plan. There were people that were known to belong to a theocracy, which God was to be the king, that he was to be the one who was leading their nation. And they are so desperate to have Jesus put to death that they're willing to give their allegiance to Caesar. And in this move, Pilate has left with no options. And so in verse 16, it says, Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus away. So what John has captured here in chapter 19 is the innocence of Jesus. The guilty conscience of Pilate. And the cruel execution of the cross. And John has been pointing to this moment all along. John wants us to understand the reality of the cross. Remember, he's written this so that we might believe. That's the reason he's written about the cross. John wants us to understand the reality of the cross. John wants us to understand what it is that Jesus is experiencing here. And so we read throughout the rest of chapter 19 as Jesus goes through the execution of the cross. But John doesn't want us just to know that Jesus died on a cross. John wants us to believe that the Son of God died on a cross. You see, the fact that Jesus was crucified is not challenged by anyone. It's a given that Jesus was a man who died. But John doesn't want us to believe that, yes, a man died. John wants us to see that the man who died was the Son of God. And for this reason, John gives us all of the details that point to the reality. He gives us all the names. He lists not only that Mary is there, but her sister. He lists all of the people who've witnessed this. He lists that that Jesus was at the judgment hall and he was at the pavement, that Jesus would be put in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. He's giving us all of these details so that we can know that it's real. But there's something else that he gives us here, and it's prophecy. Because John is not just recording the death of a man. John is recording the death of the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So look at verses 23 and 24. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took His garments and made four parts to every soldier a part, and also His coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from top throughout. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. So in this moment, as Jesus is bleeding to death on the cross, he is dying at his feet. The soldiers are divvying up the spoil from these people that they're executing and they have decided that one of the garments is too nice to tear into four pieces, so they're going to cast lots or roll dice for it. And while most people probably wouldn't have thought a thing about what is happening, John knows that this is a fulfillment of prophecy because Psalms 22.18 says, They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Jesus, in his dying moments, is yet fulfilling more prophecy than he is who he says that he is. Look at verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were, what's that word? Accomplished 
that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. This fulfills Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. that says, My strength is dried up, my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me to the dust of death. And 69, 21, they have gave me gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now for us, these are just scriptures. And I was tempted to leave all this out because I, I hated to, to just read all of these different passages of scriptures. I was afraid I would lose your attention. But when Paul would become a missionary for Jesus and he would go from place to place teaching the people that Jesus was the Son of God who had died for their sins and rose again, the very first thing he would do when he went into a city is he'd go to the Jewish synagogue. He'd go to the Jewish synagogue and starting with the law and the prophets, explain to them Jesus. He would show them throughout the Old Testament all of these things that have been pointing to Jesus and Paul would show them this is all about Jesus. In fact, Acts 13 tells us that Paul and Barnabas are preaching in a synagogue in Sidia, and Paul says in verses 27, 28, and 29 this, Those that dwell at Jerusalem and the rulers, because they knew Him not, nor yet the prophets, they didn't understand who Jesus was, and they didn't understand the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, which you read right here in your synagogue, the very scriptures that you read, they didn't understand the connection between them. They have fulfilled them in condemning Jesus. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet they desired Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher or a grave. You know what Paul says? Paul tells them the story that John is telling us. And he points out the fact that every step along the way, Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies about himself. That all scripture might be fulfilled that all things were accomplished. This had been the moment that all of time had been building toward. This is the moment that the Old Testament again and again had been pointing toward. And so when Paul stands up in front of a group of people who every Sabbath day gather in synagogues in their different cities, gather with other Jews to read from the law and the prophets, he says, those verses that you've been reading every Sabbath day, let me show you how they're about Jesus. What Paul has done is he showed them the things that they have been looking for and hoping for all of their lives, that all of them are fulfilled in Jesus. So these people who gathered in synagogues, these people who would journey on a regular basis to Jerusalem to worship at the temple that was overseen by the priest who had just put Jesus to death, these people hearing all of these prophecies would be convinced they would come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, He's the Son of God, and that He'd been killed by their pastors. How convincing was it? It was convincing that many of them, not all of them, but many of them became to believe in Jesus and that meant they believed that their priests were murderers. It was convincing to them. But I hope that this morning you can see not only is the cross cruel and not only is Jesus' death on the cross real, I hope you can see why today. Look at verse 30. 
When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said what? He said, it is finished. And bowed his head and gave up the ghost. All these people that are watching Jesus die. There are people there that have followed Jesus through his ministry. People who've watched him give these inspiring sermons. They've heard him teach with an authority and a power that seems unmatched. And they're watching Jesus die. And what's going through their head is, is this how this ends? He's, he's dying like a thief? And what, what they're thinking is that this is failure and rejection and betrayal and despair. But Jesus says here in the final moments, it is finished. And he doesn't say it is finished like you might say about a soda that you've finished, that you've drunk all of it, it's done, it's empty. Jesus says it is finished like when you finish working on something or you finish drawing something or you finish a poem or you finish a project. He's saying, I've accomplished what I came to accomplish. The word that Jesus uses here when he says it is finished, he uses telestai, which means that something has been brought to completion. And that same word is used just two verses previously in verse verse 28, where it says all things were accomplished. When Jesus says it is finished, Jesus was saying it is accomplished. It has been done. When Jesus had offered himself for the payment of sin, He accomplished what He came to do. And John's been pointing to this moment all along. Because when Jesus met with the Samaritan woman, and John chapter 4, the disciples have gone to get food, and they come back, they've got the bread, and they look at Jesus and say, we got the bread, and Jesus says, I'm no longer hungry, I have bread to eat that you don't know about. And they're like, what are you talking about? Jesus says in John 4, 34, my meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. In John 10, when Jesus gives the message about the fact that he's the good shepherd, that he's like the shepherd who goes looking for the one lost lamb. He's like the shepherd who brings all of his sheep into the fold. He's the shepherd that doesn't climb over the door, but he enters in by the gate and his sheep know his voice. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This commandment I have received of my Father. In John 13, when Jesus is having the Last Supper with the disciples, and He's about to kneel down and wash their feet, 13.1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, and that He should depart out of this world unto the Father. In John 17, when Jesus is praying for the disciples, He says, God, I have glorified Thee on earth. I have finished the work that Thou gavest Me to do. And in 18.4, that we read last week, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the guards and the priests show up to arrest arrest Him. They think He's going to be hiding. He walks right up to them, because verse 4 says, Jesus, therefore knowing all things that should come upon Him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek Ye. And in this moment, as Jesus is dying, he's hanging on the cross, and his followers are looking on and saying, What has happened? How can this be? This is not how this is supposed to end. Jesus says, I'm done. I accomplished what my Father gave me to accomplish. It is finished. I did what I came to do. And while to many it looked like the worst case scenario, Jesus knew this is exactly where he was headed. All along. Why? 
Well, Peter said, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He said in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Christ died on the cross for our sins once and for all. And man, that gives a whole new meaning to Jesus saying, it's finished. I'm done. When I finish a project, and some remodeling project, building some piece of furniture, when it's done, I want to sit back and say, I did it. I want to enjoy that moment. Nicole, on the other hand, will say, you know what, that makes me think that if we did this over here, and I'll say, can we just enjoy this moment of this being done before we start the next project? And in this life, it feels like there's always more work to do. And if you own a home, you're never really done. If you're raising kids, you're never really done. But when Jesus hung on the cross, he could say, it is finished. Because he was done. Not that he had breathed his last, not that his life was given out, but he did what the Father asked him to do. He took our sins upon his shoulders. He died upon the cross to take my sin and shame and give me his righteousness that I might die to sin and live for righteousness. He did that once and for all. And it is finished. And there's still work that God needs to do in me. And there's still work for us to do. And there's still a calling for us to live out. But friends, this morning, let's just enjoy the fact. It is finished. The sacrifice for our sins has been paid. And there's no more work that I have to do in that. Jesus did it all. It is finished.